0: Good evening. Can you hear me in back? My, uh, <clears throat> my nervous system is telling me not to be on this stage right now. <laughs> 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 so I ask your patience while I work through some of these kinks uh, that I'll eventually um, kind of see through. And, and uh, this is my edge. So... We all have edges, and <clears throat> it's a joy to be with you as I explore this part of my practice. Uh, it's incredibly soft faces out there. Wow, well, the practice is working. <laughs> Great to see. So it's just us tonight. Um, I asked for a little bit of space, so they haven't abandoned their trainee um, Raise your hand in back if you have a hard time hearing me. I'll try and get through my my croaky voice. So I want to share a little bit about how I uh, came to the practice just to get a little bit of a rapport going. Um, So kind of highlight the the moment that I really knew I was going to move towards the Dharma. So about 13 years ago when I was in New York, <clears throat> excuse me, at the time in medical school, and like a lot of medical students, I was under a lot of pressure, um, kind of being worn down by a system that doesn't seem to take care of people's hearts or minds. Um, I think it's probably changing at this point a bit. It's nice to see some more Holistic ideas of medicine come into the field. But I was, uh, I was overwhelmed and I was really lost and confused. Um, and it reached a really kind of climactic moment at one point when I was on a street corner in the city. And I was standing there and there was a street, uh, street signal uh, on the other side. And it was telling me, don't walk. And I was infuriated that this sign, the signal was saying, don't walk to me personally. So many things <laughs> were, were pressing in on me that even a road sign felt like I couldn't bear this anymore. And that was the first indication that something was, was desperately wrong and that I needed, I was ready to find a path. And so, I didn't know about the Dharma uh, in the West, um, so for better or worse, I, I went where people go, I went to India. Uh, I had two brothers that were somewhat equally lost and uh, we met in India and wandered around a bit, eventually came into contact with uh, Dharma and practice, practiced in India for a couple of years. Then went north uh, to northeast to Burma and practiced there. Uh, with um, (laughs) a monk, Psaida Otegenia, that some of you may have heard of at this point. And the rest is history. Here I am, (laughs) facing my big fear. So along the path, we often find... um, or in our lives, and we each know this, that there are things that will knock us down. And, you know, we have to get back up and we keep going. Hard experiences, very painful experiences. I love the description that Ram Das, I believe it's accurate, that he gave about what the nature of practice is like. And he says, from a distance, if you're watching someone from a distance, if you're watching someone practicing, it can look as if they are doing a series of prostrations on their path. But if you get closer, what's really happening is they're falling and getting up and moving forward and stumbling and falling and getting up and moving forward. And so that is what our path is like, is we are continually, continually continually moving in the direction of growth and change, letting things into our heart. That's what we're doing here, and it takes courage. So I admire you all for being here five weeks almost into this retreat. It's beautiful to see that you're all still here. (laughs) I wouldn't have been too disappointed if you decided to skip tonight, but... (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling really comfortable with you all, so I appreciate that. And we've all uh, come to the path for different reasons, and we have different stories, we have different aspirations. Like we shared in the beginning, Circle was lovely to hear some voices about what the aspirations are. Um, I wanted to share a story that some of you might know. A story about the willingness to to change, and what happens when we take that on. A father was weeding in the garden while his youngest daughter, Nikki, was playing around. The father was a goal-oriented and time-urgent person, even when weeding. Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air and dancing around. The father got impatient with her behavior and yelled at her. Nikki became silent and walked away. But after a while, she came back and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. Yes, Nikki. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday? From the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. And the, uh, the father was Martin Seligman, who was, is the founder of the Positive Psychology Movement. And he says that that, that incident was the beginning of, of that movement. So it just shows you what happens when we, when we decide to take the practice to heart. What great change <clears throat> can come. So by now you have a lot of momentum in practice and occupying the seat of mindfulness as much as you can, day in, day out, moment by moment. One of the analogies that I used to think about for myself was what I was doing on the path was, it's like a train heading down a set of tracks, and then they, they split down the road and down the tracks. And on the one side, if we just let the habitual mind, the... The, the train moved down. It's like the setting, the default setting is to just go down the habits, the habits of the mind. I don't like this, I don't want that, uh, I need more of this. So, always moving towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, just habitual tendencies. And our job is when we're sitting at the train tracks, we're just pulling that lever of mindfulness very gently. And it opens for a minute. We have a moment of mindfulness, and it closes again. Go ahead, and we open it again. Moment of mindfulness, and it closes maybe for 5, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And the more we do this, the more the tendency of the mind is to actually stay in this more awakened, mindful place until really the practice takes over itself. Right? We don't need to actually be in charge as much because the mindfulness and the other faculties are really showing up. And that's when the practice gets really interesting. And I think as a lot of you are discovering, not needing to put in as much energy as you did in the beginning. So as uh, Joseph mentioned a few days ago, that you really can't help. You can't help but be sensitive at this point. The mind is sensitive. You might not really notice just how sensitive. Um, So really to make great use of it and... A lot of what now happens is places of our challenge become kind of more in the forefront. We we'll run into the things that are that are more sticky, right—the edges and the boundaries, the places where the heart is beginning to soften and open to the places we normally avoid. In a really rich time and. I was thinking about um, some of the things that my mind can pick up um, when I'm practicing in a longer retreat. It just makes me think of how when Bonnie mentioned how, I don't know if anybody remember, but she kept saying how deep I was. And then in the following sit, I was having sinking mind, and I was just following deep, deep. <laughs> <laughs> to, I don't think that's what she meant. but. And then I was thinking about some of the things that I find humorous on retreat is amazing how clean my teeth get because every time I walk into the room it's like well this is a great time to brush my teeth (laughs) it's like what else are you going to do it's like there you are toothbrush (laughs) so you should have clean teeth (laughs) so Bhante last night talked about Nibbana and I thought I'd follow up with the the laundry type talk of practice um very practical talk about practice um So, you know, we can really reflect on what's happening as this journey unfolds for us and investigate, you know, how is the practice working? Am I I really reflecting on how am I using my mind? Am I using my time well? In what what way can I look into how I'm practicing to make sure I'm not just going to go 10 years down the road of practice or 20 years down the road of practice and not actually see the change. And this is a path of transformative change. The mind really does change over time, as as we all know. And it's one of the things that I've found really beneficial for me is just every now and again exploring the question of how, how am I practicing right now? And, you know, there's all ranges of practices. There's not a a right way and a wrong way. There's so many different styles of practice. And all of them, when you're doing them, to really know, well, what what is this way? And how is it going to work? And so I want to talk a little bit about that, particularly centered around almost all of them. They all are going to share some basic principles and right attitude of the mind, knowing the right attitude and the right relationship that we have to our experience, whether it's an object, primary object, if it's a more relaxed, open attention of awareness. Right, so we can always kind of investigate and consider what is, what is the relationship the mind is having to the moment. So, Joseph described in his brilliant way that he does, in, in so few words, uh, the path to enlightenment as describing it as being a, a movement, a journey from our comfort zone to our edge. Right? The comfort zone to the edge. And when we reach that edge, then our job is to relax into it. And as we relax and accept, it's like that capacity of what we're comfortable with gets a little bit bigger. It gets a little bit bigger. There really was no way I could have sat on this stage years ago. No way. And I remember telling my teacher that if I could ever talk in a group, I mean, I couldn't even interview with four or five people at that time. My heart would just race out of control. And I'd heard about all the stories of what the mind could do, the powers of the mind. And none of that, the miracles of the mind impressed me. But if my mind could transform to the point where there could be an ease in the mind around the really difficult edges, that was what I was really interested in. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all the teachers I've had. So in, in looking at the, uh, the question of the comfort zone and the edge and then relaxing into the edge, what is, that, what is that relaxing about? And that relaxing to me is really pointing to the attitude of the mind. Guy described it, I think, in a question to a yogi the other uh, morning about a difficult emotion. He said, relaxing allows you to tune in deeper, so relaxing allows you to tune in deeper. It's lovely to kind of consider that that when we're meeting something that's that's difficult, it's actually this softening, right? Softening, accepting, that allows it to come close, and we can actually begin to learn and investigate what's happening. And Joseph. Um, And one of his, I believe, question and answers, he brought up a few questions to really check to see, do you have the right attitude when you're meeting something that's difficult? And he said, can I be with this? Can I be with this as a question? Can I feel into this? Can I open to this? So I want to read a quote uh, to kind of highlight why this is important. when a person has learned within their heart what fear and trembling mean, they are safeguarded against any terror produced by outside influences. So this is from the I Ching, which is, I believe, about 4,000 years old. Um, so again, when a person has learned within their heart what fear and trembling mean, they are safeguarded against any terror produced by outside influences. It just points so beautifully to what the practice is that it's not about getting rid of fear and trembling. But when the heart actually learns what its nature is, right, we're no longer subject to the forces that, was, that would trigger those emotions and mind states that are hard for us. And it's that attitude, it's that relaxed Receptivity that's going to allow us as we move in our practice over and over again to that edge, right? That we begin to actually really understand what's happening. Sajjan Chah, in his uh, brilliance, used, he, uh, Sajjan Chah was a Thai forest master and teacher of many um, wonderful teachers, teachers these days, and also led into the some of the bhikkhunis that are founded now in the the West come from that lineage. It's beautiful that that's unfolding. Um, so Ajahn Chah carried this sort of balance of relaxing and moving at the edge when he was asked, uh, well, i sorry, he described uh, meditation. He described it as a holiday for the heart. And I think it's just a beautiful thing to remember that It is a holiday for the heart. Even though we're moving into edges, we're moving into difficulties, carrying that reminder that it's a holiday for the heart. Not a spa for the heart, (laughs) but a holiday. There were, in fact, a couple of yogis last year who, I think the husband bought his wife um, an anniversary present to go on a wonderful spa experience, and they showed up here. and I think it was into the second day when they realized they had the wrong retreat. <laughs> they asked in the office, so what happens after we're silent? And they, after exploring a bit, realized, oh, this is not the right place for us. <laughs> so. And Joseph makes an interesting distinction about um, being casual versus being relaxed. Right? There's being casual, which is not taking this practice seriously versus being relaxed I'm just keeping an eye on that difference. So even the, the Buddha had to learn this balance. He's the one who pointed out for us. Um, so when he was still a bodhisattva, he was exploring the full ranges of that spectrum. You know, he came from a very princely background, so all the luxuries of life were available to him. Clearly didn't satisfy him. Went on his journey. One point was doing five years of very intensive ascetic practices, self-mortification. At one point he said, if anyone else is doing self-mortifications, they do not exceed mine. The pain that I am bearing is at least the as great as the pain of theirs. So he was just sort of emphasizing just how far he he had pushed himself. So he says, but by this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction higher than the human state. Might there be another way to enlightenment? Good question. I thought of a time when my Sakyan father, my father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unprofitable things, I had entered upon an abode in the first meditation, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. I thought, might that be the way to enlightenment? Then following up that memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. So it's beautiful. He was recollecting a time when he was resting under the apple tree and naturally had what was the right attitude. And even as a child, he experienced some um, deep meditative states. And just before his awakening, that's the memory that really brought him into balance that then led him deeper into his uh, awakening. So I want to talk a little bit about the uh, change that I could sense in my own practice when I really began to explore this attitude, this particular facet of the, of the practice. Now, before this time, I was, I was practicing um, very diligently and I didn't have a particularly, I didn't have a, um, a relationship with a teacher and I didn't know the teachers uh, in the West. And so I was a little bit drifting, but I had you know, discipline that I was um, applying my mindfulness. But I was really just tracking um, the objects in my experience, and I didn't have any facility of understanding what was happening in my mind. I couldn't even check on my practice. So it was just a one, kind of one-way thing. Um, And what happened was I was slowly um, losing interest. I was losing fondness for the practice, but I didn't know it. And I kept doing it because I had had such already great benefit from that practice that I was doing. And slowly there was a mood and it was like a depression that was starting to rise because it was operating in the back of my mind. It's like this mood was as big as anything I could possibly know, but somehow I I was managing to avoid it, right? I was directing my mind somewhere else and didn't have a didn't really understand how to open my attention up to actually check another, other things that are operating once in a while, and you know that's when I really began to understand. Wow, there's there's actually a relationship that we're having to the object that we know, right? That the object that we're knowing presents itself, and it just doesn't. It doesn't just present itself purely. It, it comes through the veil of our relationship with it, right? So. Is a relationship, one of, I'm wanting this. I'm wanting to hold on to this experience. Or it's something unpleasant. I'm wanting to push it away. Right? <laughs> so in that, that basic relationship is where we begin to explore, oh, that's what's happening. I'm, I can see the attitude of the mind once we allow that part of what's happening in the mind in a moment of experience, the mind knowing an object. Right? That's probably a whole talk in terms of what that is about, but just want to enter the 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 right attitude through that so the views that um sorry, sorry. I want to say a little bit actually first before I get there about. Mm-hmm before I get to views about uh, how we're practicing. So the way I started to work with, with that attitude, um, because really my practice had gotten very um, habituated. You know, there was a really strong tendency of how I, was, how I was using my mind, and it really was one of trying to, to find my experience, find the objects of, of the mind, and kind of see them and hold on to them. And it wasn't, I could see it as like when I was hearing about what the right attitude was, I was like, oh, I definitely, I don't have that. I don't have that understanding yet. And so I was working with some things that were moving me towards that, that uh, relationship. So I did a couple things. One thing I, I did for about a few months was just I would uh, offer myself this mantra of relax, allow, observe, over and over again, it was relax, allow, and observe. And I think that's even some things that teachers offer. And then I offered, that helped a lot, and I had a, a way of entering even further into that attitude, was I, a, I tried to picture a place that I was, um, that would bring in the sense of openness and receiving whatever experiences were arising. Right, That whatever was arising, that's what was happening. So how could I actually meet what was happening? Whether it's a bad mood, doubts about the practice, doubts about myself, difficulties with partner, whatever it is, how can I have that relationship to the experience that begins to just allow it to happen? So for me, was, there was a. I always loved when we'd, go, we'd drive to the beach in the summer and there was a place where we would go um, it was very familiar in my mind. So I imagined myself as a young boy lying on the shore and just letting the waves roll over me right? as I was lying there. And I would be just on the, sh- on the sand and being tossed and turned. And there's a great sense of surrender in that. And it didn't really matter to me kind of which waves came or how they came. It was just this easeful, you know, letting the experiences roll over me. Right? And in that kind of exploration, I began to understand, oh, that's how I can actually allow experiences to to really be uh, and to not get into that tugging and pulling relationship that can come up if we're not watching. So our uh, let's see our practice. Um, so, I'll tell a little story about um, really the importance of what it, what this what I'm trying to point to in terms of learning about uh, how we're relating to the experience. You know, this is really the place where the defilements are going to start to show up. You know, the defilements of greed, aversion, of confusion when the mind is meeting an object. So any experience that we're having is going to have, you know, there either is going to be wisdom in the mind or not. There'll be defilements, right? Some, some mind states that are rising. So the question is, how do we, how do we explore that? And at one time when I was, um, so uh, in Burma practicing and I had taken a, Taken ropes. And at that time I was in, I was a monk. And I was doing some walking meditation at the back of the meditation hall. And I decided I wanted to do some late night practice. And I was walking uh, back and forth. So I was under the, the, obviously the eight precepts and the full monastic precepts. And one of the things that they allow for monks is, uh, some it's called jaggery, these sugar balls that um, they offer and then they're at the back of the hall and you can go ahead and because they're freely offered you can take some when your energy runs a little bit low and so i was doing this walking practice and i was all alone in the hall back and forth and my mind thought of oh i should have one of those and i also thought i'm just going to watch this for a little while i kept walking And it just got stronger, this calling that I was hearing from the back. It got so loud at one point that I that I I said, okay, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I took the container, brought it over to my seat. No one else was there, so I was in my secluded spot, and I put it down. And I said, I am going to figure this out. And so I just started watching. And I wasn't really watching. I actually was wanting desire to go away. And the way I know that is because within an hour, I had eaten the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> and just, you know, there is karma because it had consequences about Three or four hours later, <laughs> I was rushing to get outside and, and uh, it flushed through. So anyways, <laughs> be, be careful of how you work with the defilements. <laughs> and the message really is, we're not, we're not here to get rid of defilements. Right? We're here to really understand them. So when aversion arises, when greed arises, whatever is arising, that becomes a moment that we're knowing it, we're learning about it, We're moving towards it, right? So that's, um, it is such a rich place. And it is, I mean, if we think about what is it that liberates the mind, it's we're liberated from the defilements. It's not I've I've been able to outrun the defilements. You know, I can run faster than defilements can. I proved it. I wasn't able to outrun my defilement. (laughs) It's, you know, when we understand it, that's what, you know, it's like the wisdom lets it go. The wisdom understands ah- when I grasp, there's suffering. So some of the views that affect uh, how we practice, and these are going to be views that are not yet our personal wisdom. These are views that are um, we take on initially. Um, there's in the suttas, it describes there's three levels of, of understanding. There's just the intellectual understanding in the beginning, um, and then there's knowledgeable things that we think about, and then really insight, liberative wisdom. Um, So this this initial wisdom, we really can use, this sort of just knowledge, okay, how to think about the practice. It's interesting, I was planning on only being up here for 30 minutes, um, so I'll be here a bit longer. So One view I wanna talk about is the view of practice. And that uh, practice only happens on the cushion, or only happens on the walking path, or only happens when people are watching, or any other or that you can come up with. Um, and I was thinking about it, it made me think about, well, what happens when you know the teenagers sort of promise their parents they'll be good? Uh, when they leave, you know, and they go away. And usually, or sometimes, teenagers are not so good when the parents leave the house. And the same thing happens uh, when our defilements, if we say, uh, the meditation is over, it's like the parents leaving the house. <laughs> the defilement's like, great, let's party. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what they do. I mean that's why we are pretty much running around defiled and deluded (laughs) in our lives is because we don't have we don't know yet. We don't know you know how to how to practice. And so just to be careful about what what views you have about the practice, that the practice really is is for life. It's all the time. And there's nothing, you know, the Dharma hall is a beautiful place of a container to practice. But the only reason why the practice is getting established here is because you're putting in the energy to do it with the supportive features of the fact that there's a sangha here. I know it would be much more difficult to come into this hall and practice if we came in alone. But in terms of the application of the mind, the Dharma Hall is not doing something special. It's because you're willing to, to apply the mindfulness, apply the skill of the practice over and over again during a sitting, for example. But the same thing can happen at any moment, right? When you're brushing your teeth, when you're doing uh, laundry, when you're having your tea, sayadar um, um It would often inquire about toiletry experiences, uh, experiences in the bathroom, just to kind of poke you and see if you're paying attention at all times. So it really is, as you know, it's a practice that just carries on. Um, So another view that can affect how we're practicing and the attitude uh, is that this shouldn't be happening or this should be happening, right? This, I want this to be happening. You know, and, and if we just sort of listen to that, this shouldn't be happening, it's almost like the intellectual mind can, can know that there's something wrong there. Well, of course it, should, it, it ought to be happening because it is happening. It may not be something that's wholesome or ethically positive that's happening, but it should be happening in the sense of the causes and conditions have led to this moment arising. And so it's just interesting to see, when we can check when that view arises, this shouldn't be happening. Naturally, it can check and say, wow, there's a version in the mind. Some misunderstanding about the nature of cause and effect, right? So this delusion is present, Right? So interesting, just by seeing what the mind is doing, some thought that arises, we can really see and get some more understanding and get closer to Well, that's, what, that's a defilement. And our practice at that point really starts to, uh, when we have those sorts of views, right, this, this shouldn't be happening, our whole practice starts to become one of, I'm just practicing to change my experiences, to have good experiences. And it moves away from the possibility of learning. Right? we're no longer in that, that receptive allowing place where the mind will just receive experiences, uh, reflect on them, right? And through that repeated process, slowly gain some understanding about the nature, right? The inherent qualities that all experiences and all phenomenon exhibit, right? That they are impersonal and they are changing and they are not satisfying. I'd like to read a, a, a few lines from Psydo-Ortiginia on the right attitude, just to give some more color around this topic. So meditation with right attitude is acknowledging and observing whatever happens, whether pleasant, unpleasant, whether pleasant or unpleasant. Let me read this again: Meditation with right attitude is acknowledging and observing whatever happens, whether pleasant or unpleasant, in a relaxed way. Why do you focus so hard when you meditate? Do you want something? Do you want something to happen? Do you want something to stop happening? Check to see if one of these attitudes is present. Nature is nature. Feeling is just feeling. Whatever is happening is for learning. You are not looking for any object. You are checking the quality of mind, the quality of the watching mind, Do you have the right attitude or not? Is the mind relaxed or not? Now, for those people that are doing uh, primary object type practice, this wouldn't be how you would be practicing, but this is uh, a great reflection to bring in once in a while to just see what your relationship to your practice is or to the object. Just today, this morning, when I was um, sitting in the morning here and I was thinking about this talk a little bit, my heart was beating a little bit faster than normal. Um, I think the doctor would say it was racing. <laughs> and I was, I was exploring you know, what my relationship was to it. And, you know, I could see when I thought this shouldn't be here, that I really uh, just, it got bigger, got more unpleasant. And it was funny, and I had this thought, oh, I'm I'm having a cardiovascular workout right now. (laughs) And it was amazing. So then my fear of giving a Dharma talk and a racing heart turned into a cardiovascular workout while sitting. And all that had changed was the view in the mind, right? Oh, you know, when we see something different, we think about things differently, basic relationship changes. I'm not saying to impose thoughts, you know, on, on our experience, but just to try and bring up the right view, you know, the view being that things are happening based on causes, causes and conditions, and not the view that it shouldn't be happening or it's bad that it is happening. I'm saying this a lot just to really get home this point. So So what is it that really really liberates us on this path? And I've thought a lot about that because I think one of the most attractive things about the Dharma is that it really is a reflective path. It's not one that's telling us to believe something or adopt certain views. It is asking us to do our practice, you know, and to awaken for ourselves. You know, through contemplation, through bringing in our own intelligence, our own thinking about how we're practicing. And so there's a, there's a willingness to just meet our experiences. Right, just in their raw form, we meet them again and again. It's like Ram Dass saying, we stumble, we fall down. We meet the obstacle. We get up We keep going. There's a Tibetan saying goes something. It's not a teaching that's getting this roughly correct, but around difficult emotions, emotions that we don't want to have, fear and anger. I shouldn't be greedy. Shouldn't have sadness. So what the Tibetan teaching says is, in the first 100,000 times, we have our back to these difficult things. We're still not ready yet to face them. 100,000. The next 100,000 times, we turn and we face these challenges. And the next 100,000, we're really ready to move forward towards them and take them into our heart and integrate those forgotten parts of ourself. And so we are, we, are, we are watching to learn, not to create the experience we want. I just wanna say that again, that we are watching to learn, not to create the experience we want. So in closing, um, I want to talk about another milestone. So That event 13 years ago, that was really a a marker in my life. And I could kind of see what was happening in my life. It really indicated, um, for me, my state of mind, what I was able to deal with. Um, So just recently, something else happened. It wasn't as big an event, but it was one of those moments that kind of made me reflect, well, well, look how how far I've come in 13 years. And so with the story, um, it's not a story, it's what happened. I was uh, assisting out uh, at a retreat in Spirit Rock. And I had to uh, leave the retreat early, for uh, two days early, to see my family. They were going to go off, and I wanted to see them before they were going. And so I flew back, uh, to the East Coast. Um, I got into the airport late at night and we were driving home and we hit a deer and I was driving. And so I had, uh, because I had left the retreat early, I didn't have a chance to say farewell to the yogis. And so this is the letter I wrote that morning after that had happened. Uh, So I just thought I'd share it with you. And this is just to kind of give um, a flavor of of how much the mind changes over time. From that time, I was standing on the New York corner street debating why that street signal was demanding my behavior. (laughs) (laughs) So hello, friends. Sorry to leave you so early. It was a privilege to sit with you, hear your raw and honest reports, and to talk with some of you directly. So I had sent this email to um, a fellow teacher, um, and he read this email to to the yogis on that retreat as kind of my farewell to them. I wanted to share with you something that happened this evening. On our way back from the Baltimore airport, a deer stepped in front of the car. I was driving. For the next 30 minutes, I kneeled quietly in the night-lit meadow as she struggled to stand. Over and over again, but collapsing each time. I found myself whispering, Oh, my friend, I am so sorry. And take all the time you need. There's no rush. Take all the time you need. I held Metta in my heart for the deer and I held Metta in my heart for myself. When the time came, I kneeled by her and placed my hand on her wounded body as she slowly parted. Tears fell, tears of openness, of allowing, of sorrow, of feeling into the sacred space. What I really wanted to say is life. What I really wanted to say is that life is precious. You know that already, keep practicing. It opens and transforms the heart. So it's just a, it's just a beautiful reminder to myself. Um, When I think back of where I was 13 years ago and you know, not not even knowing how to relate to my basic experience, you know, and so many wrong views and things that were happening. Um, and it's amazing, you know, 13 years later to not be caught in self-judgment. Uh, you know, I think without the practice, I probably would have been in so much turmoil, so much confusion. I wouldn't have been able to be there and be present. And so... It was just a result of practice. You know, The meditative mind was immediately present from the moment the, the deer was hit to the moment that I was uh, with her as she was dying. So I want to offer that for your reflection. Um, so we'll sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening.